curious, competitive, compassionate. Salespeople are drawn to their careers in much the same way musicians are drawn to music. Once you've learned the language of sales, the beauty is in your ability to personally interpret what you've learned to suit your personality, your interest, and your skill. My name is Roger Burnett, and this is the So You're In Sales podcast, where we consider ways to grow as people as we advance in our careers and learn firsthand from those ahead of us on the path to accelerate our journey. I'm lucky to get to talk every two weeks with entrepreneurs, business owners, thought leaders, authors, and people of all walks of life, each with a unique story to share and a look at their lessons along the way. Prepare to be educated, informed, entertained, and inspired. This is the So You're In Sales Podcast. The So You're In Sales Podcast is sponsored by Social Good Promotions. Social Good Promotions was founded on the premise that any business can stand out from their competition when they are doing things they really believe in. True success these days is measured by the ways your employees feel about working for you and the ways your business is making the community a better place. Ultimately, it's about the ways you and your business will be remembered. If you're looking to grow your sales revenue while activating social good at the same time, we'll be your favorite marketing partner ever. Book a meeting with us at socialgoodpromotions.com, follow us on Instagram at sogoodpromo, and let's get connected. We've done great work using our unique and effective strategy. Let us show you how. Now, on with the show. All right, we're rolling. So what's up, guys? Let's let's all cheers it up real quick. Cheers. Cheers. I'm the only one not having the cream ale, the experimental brew that's going on. I'm jealous as could be. Uh, So my name is Dan Perone, um, formal title, director of brewery operations. Um, I just like to keep the line tight around here. Uh, I've been with the company uh, since... 2005, 2006, we formally opened up Corner Brewery, microbrewery here in Ypsilanti, and prior to that, I was just a passionate beer drinker looking for a place to uh, call my cheers and like-minded people that I could kind of get down and dirty with and be a part of a bigger thing outside of my own personal uh, experiences. We call that tribe, brother. That's tribe. <laughs> I have had I have had a an amazing uh, venture an urban tribe to this point, and I call Michigan my home. Nice. Sure. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. The mechanic of the operation. The mechanic, yes. <laughs> Fixer, troubleshooter, <laughs> team player. If you don't know who to call, ask Dan. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Sure. Uh, my name is John Wagner. I'm the head brewer here at the uh, Production Brewery in Ypsilanti, uh, also helping kick off the our new brew pub in Plymouth. So we got that going on. I've uh, been here, just celebrated my three-year anniversary with the company uh, last Thursday. Nice. So I've uh, been with Arbor three years, and uh, prior to that, worked at a brew pub in Illinois, and then uh, kind of started in Iowa as a uh, cellar rat at a winery and distillery. So I've uh, been doing alcohol production for nine years now, eight, nine years. That sounds about right. But I've got a background in uh, fisheries management and wildlife biology. So wow. uh, kind of did the thing where you go to school for one thing, but then you start homebrewing. I mean, I was just like Dan, craft beer enthusiast, craft beer nerd, and I was starting to homebrew more than 
and learn the science of that than the science I was learning. So uh, fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, uh, 2009, not a good year for the economy, not a lot of jobs. So right, right. kind of just got lucky and hooked up in this industry and kind of went that way. So, so you got to put your science, love of science to the passion that you have. Absolutely. That, you realize how few people in life get that I do, I right? do. I, you know, every day that I'm like, man, I'm really tired. I don't want to do this. It's, it's still, you, you still appreciate the fact that you get to do this. I wouldn't do anything else. It's great. And once you've gotten there to think that, oh, like, maybe I'll go do something that's not that. Like, oh, man, that sounds like work. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, no. Like the, the, you know, the creative freedom you get in this job, as well as the uh, academic technical side, I mean, it's unmatched. So it's great. So to me, I would think, though, like, so there you all are sitting there high-fiving each other over <laughs> those pint glasses that you got in your hand. Let's say that pops and it hits. Doesn't it feel a little bit like a hit single on the radio? <laughs> Hopefully it's not a one hit, but... Uh. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's... You look at it from both ways. You know, we look at it from a technical side of brewing where we can put numbers on a piece of paper and hit those numbers every time. And then it's like, okay, well, what are we actually doing? Are we... Are we just hitting numbers or are we actually bringing all that in harmony together to create a flavor profile, to create an experience? So yeah. uh, it's very easy to get bogged down in the numbers, <laughs> as I can attest to. But uh, no, it's definitely about finally getting it on tap and being able to share it with people. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Man. And just to, just to add on to his background, I think, you know, John said he's fortunate from having the science background to finding a job in the brewing industry that's something he loves. I think we're very fortunate on the brewery side to have a head brewer like John who came into the industry via a more science background yep. than most do yeah um because brewing is as much science as it is art right and he's got a natural aptitude for that uh that not everybody has because we're not all science geeks yeah um, so he, he brings a lot of assets to the table to what we do here at, uh, at harbor from a um, quality standpoint from a technical standpoint that's honestly really hard to find that. Right. Right. That's, how, that's another one, man. <laughs> I'll give credit to Danny Boy, too, because there's times where I'm, you know, I'm dealing with something, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm like trying to work it through, and he, he is a very professional listener. Uh, <laughs> and he'll, he'll, he'll let me throw random words and topics at him, and he'll, he'll help me work through it, so I appreciate that, too. There you go. All right, we got one more bio to go. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Mike Messick. I'm one of the four owners here at Arbor. Um, we acquired Arbor about two years ago now from Matt and Renee Greff, the founders, um, which in, in and of itself is a story. Oh, yeah, um, I bet. But, yeah, my background, I'm lifelong Michigander, born and raised in Ann Arbor, um, have a background in uh, finance and other entrepreneurial kind of um, interests, uh, uh, yeah, explorations around Michigan. We're in automotive, we're in restaurant, we're in some farming, some uh, winemaking up north. Following um, your curiosities, aren't you? Yes. Uh, doing stuff we, again, back to what you enjoy to do. It's, All right. If you can make your work, you know, yeah. fun, then you never work a day in your life. Right. Um, so, yeah, I have been a um, home brewer for going on 20 years. I don't like to admit how long anymore. Um, and just a, a craft beer enthusiast since the early days of the industry. Um, and so I've been watching it kind of from the outside in. I've, I've got a, you know, business side to the way my mind works. So I'm always looking at things that I love from the business side of things. Um, been looking at craft beer from the outside in from that standpoint for a while. Um, and when the opportunity to to, um, to to 
Acquire Arbor came up with Matt and Renee, it was a natural for us and, and my other partners uh, to get into something that we love, that we have a real passion for, and that we thought we could bring some you know, new expertise and dif- different perspectives to. Um, both from an industry standpoint and the, the, the company standpoint. Sure. So, sure. yeah, we're two years into what's been a wild ride so far and, uh, and loving it. All right, so, so let's talk a little bit about, so I think there's two pieces to the puzzle. Like, I want to give you a chance to talk about the, the lead up to the last two years. Mm-hmm. But that's probably part A of the story and then there's a part B of the story. So I'll let you guys like offer your perspective on which combination of that you want to yeah. you want to present from yeah. where things were and where they are and how you all like that roller coaster ride that's become the story of the acquisition mm-hmm. what's happened since then I mean history wise Dan, Dan <laughs> leading up history. to I can <laughs> get the front row seat. I can give you yeah I can give you my first hand experience from so I moved to Michigan in 2000 uh, basically jumped from run one rust belt Buffalo to another Rust <laughs> yeah, Belt. <you> did. <laughs> via another Rust Belt, Cleveland. <laughs> no. Uh, so when I. So you just kept making the I 90. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. My life on the 90. Uh, when, I remember my first impression when I walked into the brew pub in 2001 was, was a very tight knit, organic, passionate. There was this, like, it was this epicenter of. Like this buzz of we're all in it, we're all working towards a common goal. No one, no one else is doing this, or few people are doing this the way that we're doing it. And everyone was proud to have ownership in that. Uh-huh. And they wore it like a badge of honor sure. as they walked around the tap room or as they were, you know, serving patrons or waiting on guests. This is ours. And exactly. Right. And right. I had never witnessed anything that natural and what seemed was seemingly true to me like usually a job is a job and you know some people like it some people tolerate it right some people hate it right but this was people liked if not dare i say loved working there and within the next four or five years i got to see things become even more i guess um i guess blended and refined Mm. and to the point where matt and renee were able to take some of their other passions, world travel, uh, obviously being one of them, and beer obviously being another. And they were able to take that and grow it to the point where they decided they wanted to distribute their beer. And much to, I think, a lot of other uh, pub owners or brewery owners' uh, warnings to Matt, they were like, you could sell a pint of beer for $5 and you want to invest in all this effort, time, and money to package and distribute. Why? And I you think can just keep taking five dollar bills all day, every day, <laughs> yeah. or you can have a bigger vision than that, yeah. right? And yeah. go deeper. How expensive that. is that going to be? <laughs> yeah. So, so from that point to up to where we're sitting today, um, the transition when Matt and Renee had met uh, Mike Messing and the other owners. Um, it was a really like it, we mom and popped it for like the last twenty plus years, and it was becoming very difficult for Matt and Renee to the point where we were actually looking at kind of splitting who was going to manage what. Uh-huh. Like we never we never intended to have a full service restaurant here at the brewery. We just wanted to make beer, but 
as more and more patrons come and they see the space and they want to actually hunker down and be a part of this space. Um, our mug club list took off, the demand for food, you know, increased, and just having people deliver food here wasn't enough. Right. So it just took on a, it, you know, it took on a whole, um, I guess, space of its own. Um, well, the community, you that's that's the moment when you realize the embrace that you actually are getting from the community, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, holy cow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and you can't was, say no to that. How you, right. no. As little as they might have wanted yeah. to put in it, food, it was... It, it, had to happen to be for this building that we're in here at corner to become what it yeah. has turned into. It's been really, you know, I think I mentioned in my interview three, four years ago. I came here, so I was here three years ago, started three years ago, but my first experience with Corner Brewery was probably around 2009, 2010. And, you know, you walk in here and it is just bricks and yellow steel, but I think one thing that Matt and Renee did really well was create an atmosphere that you wanted to hang out in. Yeah. yeah. And, you could just tell from the bar staff to the people that you interacted with to how this place was set up that you wanted to be here. And I, you know, in the three years that I've been here, it's amazing how many people say, Oh, I love the corner. I love the corner. You know, we, we, it, it's its own thing. It, the mm-hmm. corner brewery is its own thing. And people have taken ownership of that. And as we've looked to make changes, you know, for the better, uh, for the quality of the beer, for the brand, we're always, always, always looking at okay, well, there's a lot of emotional investment in this. We want to make sure we honor that. Um, you know, we, right down to making things the color of these I-beams that we're adding <laughs> yeah. in the future. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting to hear Dan talk about, you know, when he first went into the pub, I think it's the same feeling when I first came here. Yeah. So. And to be able to carry that through an acquisition, yeah. That's testimony. It's huge. Yeah. That, well, honestly, that, that's that's usually what gets that, lost. Well, that's, usually. that's one of the same things that drew us to it, right? We we had the same experiences um, that they described coming here. You know, I, I was here for the first time, yeah, probably in the oh, seven, eight, nine time frame, but then, you know, getting the chance to come back here more with Matt and Renee. Um, and yeah, just absorbing the vibe and the culture here and really liking that and seeing the opportunity when it when it came up to um, to become part of the story here, not not so much to come in and flip the table upside down and change everything, right? But to take what had already been built, re- respect it, and and hopefully build on it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we've we probably talked ad nauseum about some of the changes that we're contemplating to make sure that we're doing the right things. That we're that any change that we're doing is for the better. That it's not negatively impacting or negatively perceived by the long-time regulars and customers here because mm-hmm. that's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a fine line you got to walk. But. So you guys are doing me such a solid because you saw the next question is how does culture play a role in the beer? And you've largely answered a lot of that already. Since the acquisition, how have you been able to embrace the culture that had been cultivated and maybe move it even Further, further, yeah, honor and respect the culture that you inherited, I guess. I think step one was learning it, right? And I think, you know, these guys would say the first six months that we were involved didn't make a whole lot of changes. We talked a lot and we got to know each other and we, and we threw a lot of things at the wall. Uh-huh. Um, but I think first things for us was to, to move slowly and understand, you know, from the inside, because we've been on the outside previously, really what was what was here. Yeah. Um, I think maybe the biggest outward change to representing the culture was in the rebranding that we did 
uh, early last year when we switched to cans. We refreshed the logo um, and we you know, came out with all new artwork on the cans. That was really the, the big kind of you know, external evolution of the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we take the, the logo itself, right, we spent months and months and months taking what was a tree logo and mm-hmm. turning it into a slightly different tree logo, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But making sure that um, it, it was reminiscent of the old logo, that if you looked at it, it still looked and felt like Arbor, that if you knew Arbor in the 90s or you knew Arbor in the 2000s, you would still recognize that, but that it felt clean and modern mm-hmm. and, and fresh in mm-hmm. 2018 as well. Um, and then carrying that forward into the cans, um, keeping, you know, I think Arbor's always had a sort of playful, cheeky, you know, vibe to it. So we carried that forward into cans. Yeah, they, you they did. Don't, they don't take themselves too seriously. <laughs> There's fun little... They're like comic books. They're yeah. fantastic. I mean, that's the first thing I thought was comic book art. Yeah. The first thing I looked at. Yeah. So, so and, nice you know, talking, you know, kind of tying it into sales too, talking to the brewery team about what is this beer to you guys and talking to the sales team about what is this beer to you guys and, and what is it to the customer what do we want to convey to the customer and so down to the color palette that we chose for each brand it's it's intended to communicate something about that beer to the customer um, you know where 10-15 feet away if you're walking down the beer aisle and you see that package even if you can't read the name of it or read the text on the box yet it's already telling you I'm a fruity strawberry beer. I'm a hoppy IPA just by, by color and mm-hmm. sort of um, subconscious reactions that you have to, mm-hmm. to the packaging. Yeah, and wh- whomever you paid a lot of money to to help you do that, <laughs> I say bravo because as I told you before we started recording, like I'm drawn to the story of why you're in cans as much as the fact that the cans were designed the way they were. Yep. So is there anything noteworthy like from that birthing process of yep. okay like I, I, there's got to be some story in that right so i'm gonna sure so uh, i mean historically arbor's been bottling uh you know we started with a was a two head or forehead uh forehead forehead uh mahin type bottler with a lot of small packaging breweries started with that right. you know great piece of equipment to get breweries starting but uh you know kind of the name of the game in packaged beer is oxygen um you know, and a lot of these older design fillers, like uh, some of the early Mahines, as well as uh, we were operating uh, what was called an SMB Technic, uh, weren't doing a great job to keep oxygen out of the package. Um, so we're, we're talking, you know, like, okay, well, we're really looking to get a new packaging line. We're looking to do a brand refresh. What do we want to do? I think initially it was like, all right, well, let's see if we can get a, a line that'll do bottles and cans. Let's see if you know, could we keep the SMB and use it for, you know, bottle conditioned beers? Or, you know, we tossed around a lot of different ideas and what we really came down to was cans are what's popping in the market. It's ultimately better for the beer because it keeps light and oxygen out, two of the things that degrade packaged beer. And if we could get a line that really kept our oxygen down, we're then able to put product into that beer. Sorry, Chris Davies, our pub brewer, would hate me calling it product. Uh, uh, Let's just call it beer. Putting the beer into package. Uh, putting the beer into package. Put you the know. science in the container, sir. <laughs> science in the container. Like that. Um, Remove the oxygen element. <laughs> so, you know, if we, if we got the line that we wanted... Um, 
and got it down low enough. It's it's getting the product. Sorry, can't do it. Can't not do it. Uh, getting the beer into our customers' hands in the freshest possible character, and that that went was weighed probably utmost in my mind. I think most of our minds was cans just ultimately are going to make the beer better for everybody. Yeah. So were you were you championing that cause for like? I've been wanting us for five years to do this, and it took all this commitment. Yeah, you know, it was no, funny. Just, no, we we had some uh, contract canners come to us years ago, like in my first year here, and we're like, you know, Matt Matt and I talked about it, and we're just like, you know, those from a cost perspective are really tough. They're more of a marketing exercise when you use a contract canner that comes in, cans your beer for you. But we were like, yeah, you know, it's just not not what we're looking for. And then less than two years later, we have our own canning line. We've completely rebranded it. <laughs> but, but prior to that, when we were still manually or damn near hand-packing, hand-bottling. Uh, and The epitome of the mom-and-pop-ness of yeah, the operation is hand-bottling stuff. Right? Before we upgraded to what was then, the, the bottling line that we purchased was Founders Old Bottling Okay. Line. So before they blew up, we took what the line that really kind of helped bring them to that point where they were becoming regional. But even then, I had said to Matt Kraft, founder, I was like, what about cans? Let's look at, let's look at maybe doing cans because it's a denser package. We can fit about two cases of cans, 12-ounce, 24-pack of cans, in about the same space as we could have fit uh, case of 12 ounce long neck bottles so you're shipping more stuff and fewer yeah, shipping, right? shipping air and we gained yeah. we gained like almost doubled our warehouse space just by switching to that format but the problem back then was that cans weren't as popular oscar blues really kind of kicked off yeah, yeah. the craft can movement thank you but, for the but <laughs> yeah but uh but we just couldn't get close to the minimums that were required based on our output and what canning companies, you know, what they would sell truckloads yeah, for. Yeah, and the equipment quite so hadn't quite caught up yet. I mean, yeah. it, they're still developing new lines that hit the marks that we want to hit. Yeah. You, you buy the newest stuff early, it's always expensive. Yep. Yeah. Right? So and it always right. gets faster and cheaper as it goes along. So. Yeah, right. Kind of right place, right time. And it was just at, just at that point in time um, when we were looking to make a change that lower volume canning lines even became a thing because if you go back 10 years ago the only people running cans were coke pepsi bud right. miller right super high volume so right. you know lower volume lines just didn't exist and they finally a couple few years ago had gotten to the point where they did and the quality was good so we were looking at you know if we looked at the list of things that we wanted to do the the old bottling line had to go it was just a question of what it would be replaced with and we wanted to rebrand and sort of refresh the image we wanted to up the quality, like John said, we wanted to um, improve, you know, shipping costs and sustainability. Like it just checked every box. There's yeah. probably not a box on the pro con list right. between bottles and cans right. that cans didn't win out on. Other than so, just wor- being worried that it just wouldn't be popular or not. Right? Yeah, and right. that had really that that tide had shifted in the last the kind of two years leading up to that. I think um, yeah, we yeah, certainly got some people initially that you know just. Didn't, you completely changed the you recipe. Ruined it. You, you ruined, ruined it. it. <laughs> or that just wouldn't flat out wouldn't drink it because it came out of a can. We still get that. Yeah. And you know, I, that's where I like to do the blind taste with people and right. buy the same beer, whether it be you know Budweiser or Sam Adams or whatever, and pour the same beer out of a can bottle. 
Maybe. Tell me which is Tell which. Tell me which right. is which. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. You know, it's interesting. So I'm thinking about our status in top five, top ten produce, producers in comparison to the rest of the country. I actually think it's the proliferation of the other craft breweries around the country forced the manufacturers to find a product because there was more demand for that mid-level. Oh, absolutely. So they had to start making product solutions that weren't aimed totally. at a Coke, a Pepsi, yep. because they saw that opportunity. And imagine if those pioneers in those other places, like Matt and Renee, yeah. hadn't said, like, this is a thing, and bad beer sucks, and we want better beer, right? Because, mm-hmm. man, in 2000, I know what I was drinking, and it wasn't that good. <laughs> well, it's way better now, yeah. right? And if you look at, I mean, just from a job opportunity standpoint, there could be an engineer that's working for, you know, big beer, and they just don't want to be that cog in that machine anymore, and they either branch off with a partner that has an engineering background or a brewing background, and a lot of the partners that we have seen, even one of the partners um, that installed the cellar cabinet, the touch panel on our new brew pub in Plymouth, that guy was an engineer at another brewery, and broke away from that to start his own company to create craft automation, you know, more affordable automation for craft brewers, you know, affordable. Doc Brown. Affordable Doc Brown of craft beer. Yeah. Thank you, Doc. But, but, so, you, so you look at that, where there's, where there's opportunity, like, you know, like the guy that we bought our brew house from, uh, he was a brewmaster. He went back to work at uh, Miller Coors, you know, like he decided to break away and do his own thing. And he was in Arizona, and they, he just was like, "I'm gonna, I'm pulling my hair out, and I can make more money working for Big Beer, and not have to worry about trying to stay afloat running a small business." You know, so do I let them auto tune my song for all of the record sales, or do I leave it the way it's supposed to be? Right. <laughs> right? I mean, like, yeah. what, are you, what are you willing to sacrifice yeah. for that? Choose, that would be others. Exactly. All right. So I want to talk about new product development because you guys obviously just went through this, right? So, so walk me through the process of like you arrived at a place where you're like, all right, we know what we're putting in our new line. What happens from that point forward? How do you how do you get from there to there's cases of beer with the logo on it in the places that you want them to be sold? Well, you order the ingredients, black out, and then it's a year and a half later. <laughs> black it out, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it it's was, a shockingly long process. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it, I think last year we started their 2019 brand calendar discussions in July. And I hate to say July is coming up this year. Right? Pretty, pretty soon we'll be talking about what we're doing next year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the lead time on, on packaging, on branding, on federal approvals, all that stuff is so long. You need at least six months. And ideally you're at 12 to 18 months out that you're planning. Um, so for us, the planning process is extremely collaborative. It's sales, it's production, it's marketing. Um, even sometimes the, the tap room folks sit around a table and just throwing out beer styles, looking at our calendar, what sold well last year, what maybe didn't sell as well, what seasonal holes do we think we need to fill, what new exciting beers are out there that we want to try, what great beers have we ran through the pub recently that were big hits that we might want to you know, elevate to a distrib- uh, distribution status. Um, and we just start throwing stuff at a wall and it's, you know, there's more ideas than we can fit in a year. So it becomes, what do we, you know, 
what gets erased to so, kind of get to the so final there's a thing. side somewhere that was a basement tape that we should have made, guys. Right? Like, we got to go find it, right? <laughs> it's its own little like the stuff we didn't make series. <laughs> well, now too, it's it's getting even harder because you know we have this great you know 20 years of recipes, but the market is going less from from a diverse style standpoint down to one style but a very varied style like IPA you know whether we're talking a classic west coast a brood and you know all the myriad of things that people are putting in IPA so that that also adds the challenges how do we sell four different kinds of the same beer well so yeah Matt and Renee you know took a Belgium trip years and years ago and fell in love with sour so Arbor's been doing sours as early as most most folks have in the state yeah yeah and you know we've always tried to make that kind of a fun element of what we're doing here um seeing how that market's going you know really honoring classic styles with little bits of uh riffs to that as well you know one of the things that when mike and company came uh into corner brewery you know I, i guess really from a production standpoint because this is kind of the epicenter for distribution. Like anything you see packaged out in the market is coming from Ypsilanti. Right. And you get you get tied and you you form relationships with these inanimate objects because it's a name idea that you had when you were having a great night, you know, hanging out with Matt and Renee, or it's a it's a beer style that somebody didn't want to brew. Uh, strawberry bra and Matt Graff. <laughs> and, and, Renee, and Renee ends up saying, no, this is a beer we need. So she just went and ordered the packaging and Forced Matt was under the gun to, to do, do this. And now we, we had, just spent five grand on packaging, make some beer. Yeah. And then she mic dropped and said, there's our flagship. There's a decade but, of brewers very angry at that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there's also a decade and of brewers that had a chance to start a career in beer right. because we gave That's them that a, opportunity. Yeah. Because without that main, beer, main, main category, we could have right? been spinning our wheels. But, but there's a slew of legacy recipes that were really great recipes and they have a very strong following it's just not a big following and one of the things that i hope that we can get back to and and everybody's got you know it's i I say it's kind of a selfish thing because everybody wants to tell you what their rendition of this particular style is everybody wants to share their take you know um but i feel like at some point you know we can get back to at least if it's just a just internally we do uh legacy beer releases and stuff and there's certain beers that haven't gone away like sacred cow is still a sacred cow like it was uh it was matt's beer that he wanted to brew that nobody really kind of understood and ipas weren't really uh well i guess come on not just an an ibu yeah like a yeah. punch in the face IPA, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and then when when John signed on, he was just like, he's like, I friggin' love Sacred Cow. He's like, I don't, I don't ever want to see it go. So when we had these really difficult meetings at times, because you got to see people just couldn't leave emotion out of it, and we we're talking about who's making the cut and who's not, and you could just see people sweating kind of mentally <laughs> when it came to it's their beer, making their beer, <laughs> and then it was like, you know, and I, yeah. I, yeah. There's certainly beers that, you know, that we, <laughs> we retired, but they, you know, like Dan said, we, the more flexibility we give ourselves in our production, which we're working towards that, you may see some of those legacy brands pop up, maybe even at our, at our pubs. I yeah. mean, 
downtown Ann Arbor still sees the jackhammer, still sees, uh, you know, maybe some espresso love someday. I'd love to bring that beer back. Yeah. Um, definitely, you know, we've got these legacy brands we, we certainly want to keep making, but it, you know, that's the tougher thing to convey sometimes to our very, very loyal clientele here uh, that, you know, we would love to make it for you. And you guys definitely drank a lot of it, but we made a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's got to go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. guys yeah. talked it. we got to yeah. feed the whole state. And they're, yeah, they're patrons, but they're not necessarily patrons out in the market. Sure. They're patrons here. Sure. Yeah, 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 which is a completely different yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you want uh, advocates for your brand out in the marketplace to say, like, I stand by Hop Slam wasn't Hop Slam until everybody decided that they needed to make it a thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it was still a great beer, but it wasn't like the Oberon release that clearly had already set the precedent for them. Yeah. Right. But Hop Slam, I mean, it's just the strength of the beer itself that the community said, oh no, we're behind this thing, right? So, so I think for you guys, maybe not necessarily, um, like the production of it can't be dictated by the community, but the community can tell you if you gave them the list of the ones that they would get behind if you gave them choices. Say, sure. like, yeah. which would be the ones that you guys would make sure you stood behind if we're gonna go ahead to take the time to produce those. Like the, uh, the Sh Shiner, when they do theirs, you know, they do these crazy ones that they pull out from, and they sell them all up, you know? And, yeah. it's, and it's because that Shiner community, or at least the version of that community that I know, like, the minute it's out, or even that, like, it's almost like a concert release. Like, did you hear what they're gonna put out this year? Yeah, yeah, and like it becomes a subcontext of the brand because the community is having its own conversation right. about like what should we convince them to make? Yeah, you know, yeah, and it's you know that that's where we have the conversations. We know what we like sitting around that table. It's trying to figure out what is the customer, what's yeah. the consumer looking for in 2019 or in 2020. What's going to be right on people's minds? What do they want to drink? Right. Um, and there's beers that we had to retire, you know, even just temporarily that we all loved that there just well, wasn't. Today, people weren't buying that yeah. beer. And yeah, well, hopefully those beers. These days, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's great clean beer, but. <laughs> we all, and we all hope. going to have it here this year. I'm calling. Lager, you're calling lager? Yeah. Okay. Clean, clean, Everything goes clean in cycles, so some of these will cycle back. You look at what Big Beer is basically running their trade on, and it's light, easy drinking, sessionable high volume, like repeatable, you know, kind of beers. And we've thrown everything. I mean, uh, probably five years ago, you'd be challenged, it was before John was here, but you'd be hard pressed to find one beer at 5% on our beer menu because it was oh, all about, I, I all about big beers. Six plus, yeah. And it was, and it was, it was like, and, six plus and a lot that were eight, nine plus. Yeah. And we would have we would have regulars just saying like, I would I would I'm telling you right now I will spend more money and more time at your establishment if I'm not going to get schnockered on one beer. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and we and we heard that and yeah. we were like and I think everybody was hearing yeah. it. It was just a different same conversation, different location. It's kind of like a version of like craft retrograde where we're backpedaling to try to get caught up with what the macro brewers yeah. have been doing all along. Yeah. You but know? the good news is, is I think you have a, you can have a seat at that table now. Yeah. Right? Yes. By virtue of what you've done 
over here to then come back and say, oh, like, that's easy. We can do that, too, and do it better than they're doing it. Yeah. And doing it without compromise, right? right. So they, they got to a light, easy drinking point by compromising in a lot of different decisions along okay. the process, whereas we can make a full-flavored Kolsch or a cream ale um, that hits all the points that people want in terms of drinkability. A lot of it points of Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, but we can do that and still make it taste good and still do it the right way. All right. For sure. All right, so this is the last question that I always ask. And this, is, like, this isn't a brewery-specific question. This is just specific to a business that's attracting consumers and trying to get them to give them as much money as possible. <laughs> so if I asked you, what does the brand stand for? How, how would you guys answer that question? Money and power. Yes! <laughs> Sweet! <laughs> that was Dan Perron, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You can find me at 720 North Street <laughs> in Ypsilanti, Money and power, baby. <laughs> That's the new beer name. Right there. I don't know. I guess what we show up with every day, which would be a passion, work ethic, and to do things to the best of our ability and to do it tirelessly. Because that's what I feel like we do every day when we show up to work. I mean, it, it starts with our front of house staff. I mean, we have bar staff that's been here, well, one that's been here a really long time. Yeah, he's the longest standing employee. How about uh, that? Yeah. But, you know, five, Your six, seven years. The person is the person who's been here the longest. That's how good yeah. I'll yeah. yeah. That yeah. means I'm not sick of these motherfuckers every time they come here. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> Top to bottom, everyone here is extremely passionate about the job they do, the product we make, beer we make. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But, it, yeah, to, to Dan's point, it's just everybody wants to show up and do the best job that they can, and they're dedicated and passionate about it. Um, you know, whether it's myself who's dedicated to the technical quality side or Dan who's supporting that, but also, you know, he'll go out and shovel gravel out of the parking lot to just <laughs> make it, you know, make it through that day or do whatever needs done or, uh, you know, any of our brewing staff that if it's like, you know, hey, I don't need you to do a brew side thing today. I need you to go build picnic tables. Right. You know, it's it's everybody. It's all inclusive, and I think that's what gives us uh, some strength in our in our company. Yeah, and I would. I mean, I would wholeheartedly agree with passion. I, there's people are in this industry because it's something they love. Right. Um, the other things I would say we stand for it, to me is quality and then fun, having a good time. Right. This. People like working here, um, and I think it shows in what we do. And more importantly, people have to enjoy, customers have to enjoy coming here mm -hmm. and, you know, enjoying the beer. Uh, if we can't have fun making beer and if our customers don't have fun drinking our beer, then it's Probably all, it's it all for the long haul, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would tell you, so as, as a guy who gets to do this, interview people and, and ask that question, let me offer you what I see. So I would say... People always want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Clearly, this, True story. this brand established a culture of being bigger, of creating an environment that allowed people to thrive in the environment from a long time ago. And that even through an acquisition and a rebrand, that the person who serves the beer is the person who's been here the longest. And what we say oftentimes in sales is, I could be the best salesperson in the world. If I have a bad inside salesperson or a bad customer service rep, I'm done. Because if what I'm saying and what they're saying are not in alignment, whatever emotion I've created with the customer immediately gets ruined, right? So 
what he said and what happened were two completely different things. So not only am I not authentic, they think I'm a fraud, right? And so what you guys have been able to do is through the product, to the way it's been packaged, to the way that you've taken the rebrand, it's been a reflection of the culture of the organization that you wanted to carry forward just in a way that was representative of the folks that were coming in to make it their own. And, and from my perspective, I applaud you all. And we're gonna try to put some product in people's hands. So stay tuned listeners for that about what that might look like. But I mean, from me to you guys, like bravo, congratulations. This, like, this notion of the color yellow that you have here in the space, and I'm gonna take a picture of the building because we would tell you in branding, color is very important. And the fact that you guys consciously or subconsciously, even before the rebrand or after, decided we want to play on the colors in what's happening here as a way to invoke emotion on top of already creating an environment where people feel like they're bigger than something, than that, that, that's themselves. That's why, that's why it's where it's at, man. So yep. good for all you guys, dude. And let's go have another beer. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys.